0: Hello, welcome to episode 119 of Lunar Poetry Podcast. My name is David Turner. How are you? We seem to be hurtling toward the end of the year with the trees in the southwest of England now resembling the interior of 1970s caravans but I'm sitting in the blazing sun which is momentarily nice but probably signals doom for the world and us. This month's guest is Bristol-based poet Shagufta K. Iqbal. I met up with Shagufta back in early October 2018 at her home in Bristol to discuss the many facets of her career, which I won't go into now as she covers that perfectly herself in her own introduction coming up in just a moment. As well as her writing, we chat a lot about the collaborative nature of providing platforms for other writers, focusing on the role she played in founding the Universe Collective, a platform and support network for South Asian women writers. It's also been a while since I've had a guest on that would define themselves as firstly a spoken word artist, so it was great to hear another writer's thoughts and experiences of making the transition from successful stage presence to published author. Before the conversation, a huge thank you to everyone that has bought a copy of our anthology Why Poetry, either from a bookshop or direct from the publisher Verve Poetry Press. Just a quick reminder that our funding from Arts Council England ends this month and after that we'll need to look at other ways to fund the various aspects of the series. My main focus at the moment is to secure the money to continue to transcribe the podcast. Each episode currently costs around £80 to transcribe and is something I don't have the skills or time to do myself. All the money that we make from the book will be reinvested into making the series as accessible as possible. So if you buy a book you'll be directly playing a big part in that accessibility link to the book in the episode description uh, side note, if you can't afford to buy the book then ask for it at your library I'm sure they'll get it in for you I'll be back at the end of the episode to share a poem from the book and speaking of transcripts you can download a full transcript of this episode over at our website lunarpoetrypodcast.com Also, don't forget to check out our companion podcast, A Poem A Week, in which we bring you, you guessed it, a poem every week. From the likes of Andrew McMillan, Deanna Rogers, Raymond Antrobus, Emily Harrison, Will Harris and Meryl Pugh. All episodes can be found wherever you get your podcasts or over at our website. There's something flying overhead. That's probably enough from me. Here's Shukufta.
1: Um, So I'm Shugufta Keiqbal. I'm a poet, experimenting with film sometimes and um, a writer, workshop facilitator and founder of the universe. I'm mostly here to talk about the Jam is for Girls, Girls Get Jam Poetry Collection, which is a debut poetry collection. And it's titled after a poem called Jam is for Girls, Girls Get Jam. And it's probably one of the first spoken word pieces I wrote. So I suppose I really like it for that reason, because it forced me to go down into another, another way of writing poetry that wasn't just page poetry. It was much more conversational. It was about speaking with your audience. And I started writing a poem many, many years before this, and I couldn't finish the poem. I think I was too emotionally caught up in in the narrative of that piece and I put it away and it revived itself through this um, and came and spoke to me in this way and it's about being Punjabi about being brought up in the UK as third-generation Punjabi and Punjabi culture is particularly rural parts of Pakistan, where we're from, is very farming-based. And so the men would go out and work the fields and do all the hard, laborious work. And the women also would do all of the hard work. But for some reason, they would get the vegetables and the men would get the meat and they would get the jam for breakfast, and the men would get the eggs. And so when we came over here, that mentality stayed, even though the lifestyle and the culture here had changed. And so um, I think it was probably one of my biggest reasons for being a feminist Um, even though I didn't really like eggs I was making a very strong point about why we still continued with these gender roles even though they no longer needed to exist in this in this society that we lived in so it's called Jam is for girls girls get jam but we awoke to the sizzle of eggs in the pan I liked mine well done and my sister liked hers with the yolk just so yes we were girls but we got eggs not jam but we were made to know I was not born boy I was not born to be man, I was not born to be given away, and that's why girls get jam. And that's why I have not one but three beautiful sisters, because I was not born boy. And I was made to know that I escaped the desert sands, my mouth was not placed over with hand, I was lucky enough to be born after the gift of the Quran, to be protected by the word of Allah. And still my Ummah does not hear the compassion bestowed upon us by Allah. Still my Ummah chooses not to see the light bestowed upon us by Allah. Yes, bones lie scattered, crisps crossing through deserts under the feet of our beloved prophets. And like my mother, the desert heat suppresses secrets and mass graves gather under sand dunes. No, I cannot tell you why that girl child buried breathing lies in the embrace of the Sahara. And yes, I must cover live in shrouded black cloth grazing against my skin, protecting me from everyone else's sins, my face, my eyes, my lips, my words, my honesty. And yet, I must pluck and wax and tweeze and squeeze and polish and lipo and smile for lips, big tits, designer vagina because this way, this way it gets called freedom. You see, my identity and my honour lie not in me but in those who own me and oh, how they adorn me, I... I tinsel like Christmas tree, purple bruises sparkle against my face because in the land of the free by the man I love, I am battered every 15 seconds. And in the land of democracy, I was only given the right to speak in 1918, so shh. Yes, he tells me to hush, because only in 1991 did it get called rape. So don't say a word, he says. But I... I've just got to ask, is that why even today only 4.2% of rape cases lead to conviction in Bristol? Yes, I said 4.2% of rape cases lead to conviction in Bristol. Yes, they all just let him walk away because I was not born boy. I was not born to be man, I was born to be given away and that's why girls get jammed. And like traitors, they say we give away land. We do not carry on our father's names, we disappear in family trees. No one can trace who we are, there is no leaf left for me. And as silent, as sweltering, heavy nights we are considered to have come from thin air. Giving birth to strong sons, serving great husbands and burning to death on funeral pyres, the Ganges just rolling on by unperturbed by that smell of burning flesh, that stench of charred hair that once tumbled down a honey-brown back. And they remind us that we got lumbered with jam. We were born to be given away. And no one loves those who aren't here to stay.
0: Thank you very much, Sugafda. It's always amazing to hear people read mm-hmm. for the first time away from an audience because uh, whilst I've quite often seen my guests read their work at spoken word events or at sort of more somber, uh, more staid readings, it, it's always a very different thing when it's just one-to-one and you're sitting in someone's very lovely home and they've wel- welcomed you in. But What do you do after a poem like that? It seems very glib to just say, oh, hello, welcome to (laughs) Lunar Poetry Podcast. Let's get going. But um, maybe we'll use that point as to start, because we were speaking very briefly before I hit record, about this question of who we're trying to talk to and why are we choosing a method or any method that we might use to talk to those people. And I just suppose because I haven't had for a while with... Throughout the archive, we've got a lot of people that would class themselves first and foremost as spoken word artists mm-hmm. or poetry slammers or um, performance poets. It's been a while since we've talked directly about how we make the transition from stage to page. And I'd just like to acknowledge this conversation will go nowhere near discussing any divide between those no. two things. But I just think it's interesting for, for to talk about from someone that started in the way that you did in your initial interaction with poetry, what was the attraction to come towards the book? But perhaps we could just talk a bit about how you got started first and we'll sort of naturally come towards the book.
1: Um, I suppose for me, writing is very much about making sense of the world as I know it. For me, it's a really good way to process my own emotions and feelings and thoughts on a subject matter. And so I started writing... I mean, for me, I think I go between stage and page... Um, and, and at various points of my life, I feel more comfortable in the stage space and other times I feel more comfortable in a page space. I think all spoken word poets should be comfortable with page because I think if you're going to perform something, you've had to worked on it in that in that on that page or or the phone as they do these days. (laughs) Um, I've started doing it myself so I I can't uh, say anything about that but that's kind of where the writing came from and I I studied actually at Bar Spa University so I was doing a lot of page poetry at the university and exploring my voice through that. How... I decided, why did I decide to take it to, I think Bristol had a really good spoken word scene. We had Lucy English and Glenn Carmichael who were sort of pioneering a lot of the slam that was happening and I started going along to those events as a really good way to hear poets that weren't dead poets and contemporary poets and poets who were living in the same communities and societies as me and the issues that were pertinent to their lives and how that interlinked and intertwined with some of the concerns or some of the the questions that I had um, and that seemed like a really good way to learn about my contemporaries um, and then and therefore learn about my own work <clears throat> And so that's kind of how I got into spoken word and I really like spoken word because I feel like it stops you from being a lazy writer because you are so aware of your audience and not just at the writing stage but at the stage where you're engaging with the the audiences and I think it's interesting reading to somebody who's just the singular person in front of you, um, and then trying to engage with an entire room full of people or a a theatre full of people, I think it forces you to work really hard. And I think it forces you to think about the way in which you're communicating your work. Otherwise, you can end up being very much in your own head. And I think I suppose also being a writer who is a woman of colour, sometimes you feel that you're very aware of your audiences about the nuances that they get in your work, whether it's landed in the same way that you've actually spoken out what you think is a truth. And I think I've sometimes deliberately tried to seek out audiences who are similar to myself in backgrounds, so that I feel that the stories that I'm telling are maybe authentic or land with somebody else in the same way. And actually, I'm not making this all up, but that there is yeah, that it's that it's not just me who's kind of saying, "Oh, this is this is the truth," and it's not. It's um, a very vague no, way of saying.
0: No, no, but there's a couple of really important points that have come up in that, in that. I think in the, so, let me try and divide these yeah. clearly so that you can respond <laughs> to them or ignore them, but consciously okay. do it either. But uh, recently, uh, the poet. Niall O'Sullivan who is uh, for the last 14 years has hosted Poetry Unplugged in London a regular open mic night he's been writing a series of thoughts and ideas around spoken word on Twitter which he does quite a lot but more recently he's been really hitting some really interesting points and his, his sort of contention that a lot of spoken word artists and fans will claim that they like the art form because it links them to like the sort of a very 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 old oral tradition and his mm-hmm, point yes. which you sort of make there yourself is that spoken word is rooted in writing it's rooted in the page because most I would say very unless you're improvising most work has been worked on either pen and paper or like you said now smartphones and tablets mm-hmm. and then the second point was that you know you have that immediate connection with the audience uh, they're there you can't hide from them it sort of does force you to acknowledge them in a way that you might not do writing in your traditional poetry garret all alone when you've isolated yourself from the world because the world doesn't understand you but perhaps what is missing for a lot of people that get into spoken word and maybe is an attraction for getting stuff on the page is that sort of editorial conversation that you might have of of okay this is how something hits in the moment this is the emotion it drags out of our audience but where do you go if you want to talk about the longer lasting effects of that poem through twitter you might hear something but it's unusual isn't it to yes. hear what lasting effect your poetry has had on someone yeah as a spoken word artist
1: Okay, so three questions. Uh, let's, okay, let's start at the beginning with the with the. Um, a lot of spoken word poets are saying it's going back to oral traditions of telling of storytelling, like Beowulf, for example, and other cultures which are um, rooted in oral traditions. Yeah, I suppose there is a truth to that, but I also think spoken word is slightly different. I think a lot of that storytelling, that traditional old, when we think of storytelling, had not always, but mostly had a really nice rhythm had a really nice rhyme Um, and also I'm thinking of the Quran for example so a lot of people who don't speak Arabic know the entire Quran off by heart sometimes and that's quite amazing to me because it's a big old book Um, and it's through the rhythm of it and it was there to be sort of embedded in your mind and a lot of spoken word poets now don't use that rhyme um, and use free verse so I feel that it's not so easy to remember, so I think you've got to experiment with the page, and you've got to experiment on, on seeing it written down. And we live in a society where you know writing is part of our, as very much part of our culture and our canons. So that's one thing about the audience. Um, I'm, I'm speaking directly with the audience. In one respect, I think it's really good that because it forces you to engage directly with an audience. But I have also noticed sometimes when I start to go to regular poetry nights, um, sometimes the same thing will come up again and again and again. And there's there's this danger of people performing in silos and, and working in these spaces where it's, it's just echoing back the same sentiments. And getting a click from an audience for saying something that's been going around on social media or being politically current um, in your work and maybe losing the poetry. And I think that's where the danger is when I say that you need to write with it, is that you need to spend time, even if you're somebody who doesn't particularly need to see your, your, your poem on a page, you need to spend time in saying, well, what is it that makes this a poem and not just a series of political statements? And there are times when I've gone to Poetry Night where I've thought, that person was brilliant they really got the entire audience up on their feet and and really engaged and really in agreement with them but at what point was that poetry and what at what point did they make me see the world in a different way or did they just lay witness to what's happening around them that we all agree with um and I think that's where sometimes for me the danger lies with with being in those public spaces of just talking with an audience because it it you lose the poetry whereas when you sit down and you actually see a line written down on a page and you've read that line somewhere else or you've seen it on an hashtag uh, on an instagram post it feels like you need to work harder that's not good enough and so that's what i feel about the dangers sometimes of being too performance driven
0: yeah i'm 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 sort yeah. of nodding I don't want yeah. to try sort of take over too much with any of my own opinions but I, I, I do feel like there's a, a very real danger that um, spoken word poetry falls into eliciting only emotions from people because mm-hmm. that can be done through rhythm and pace and repetitive action yes that is not to take away from the fact that if you are able to do that to an audience of 60 to a thousand people that is an amazing thing to be able to do right (laughs) but then
1: does that make you a poet or does that make you a performer I think that's that yeah yeah. yes um
0: and at what point did you start asking those questions of yourself
1: um probably towards the end of when I wrote the collection and started taking the collection out and started performing it and felt sometimes in performance the work was lost and I really want to say, well, I've got a book. So why don't you, if there's a poem that, you know, I really like, why don't you spend some time with this poem? And I think also because I, I've got a, a background in literature, there are times where I've gone back and i read a poem or I've gone back back and i read a book. And reading it the second time, the third time, the fourth time, you pick up something new every time. And there's something quite nice about spending one-to-one time with, a piece of literature or a piece of spoken word that's moved you because you can listen to something online and and it moves you in the same way so I think that's when I started having those questions about what performance meant and at what stage I need to turn to what being a performer and being a writer
0: and before you started asking those questions and considering more the different layers within your work and how different poems may function differently in different settings do you feel like you would have been able to had you asked that question of yourself earlier, do you think you would have been able to get any answers? Do you feel like there would have been a support network of people that could have helped you to begin to consider without physically just printing a book?
1: Yeah, I think um, the lead up towards books, so lots of things are happening at the same time as bringing the I mean, the book is, is almost a summing up of 10 years worth of, of writing. So there are times where I thought this poem doesn't sit in this, shouldn't sit in this book, but actually it's part of a an ongoing journey within within the narrative of the book because it's such a, a, a long period of time and that's the thing with most spoken word artists who are recently getting books out. Selina Godden, who's been performing for a very long time, has released her first collection after so many years and so her voice must change within that. I learned a lot from working with Apples and Snakes and I remember doing a project with Jasmine Gardosi who is a Brum- brummy based poet a brilliant performer and a brilliant writer. And I remember she performed a piece of poetry, and I was just I was holding my breath the whole time. it she really took you on this journey. and I remember how powerful she made her words and how sometimes I think when you are a writer, you just want to quit get your words out there. just let everybody know this is the story I'm telling, and this is what it's about, whereas she really played with suspense and really played with how she dragged sometimes series of events out and stopped and and just how in charge she was of her tone how in charge she was of the way in which she delivered that work and then I saw Deanna Rogers perform as well who is now also a Bristol-based poet but mm-hmm. originally from from London and she performed a poem it was I think it was a love She wrote it originally as a love poem and then performed it as a really cynical... So we were doing this thing with blah, blah, blah at the Wardrobe Theatre, which was on Valentine's Day. So it was love versus the cynics team. And so we did a slam. um, And I think she didn't have a cynical poem, but she turned her love poem into a very cynical poem, criticising love. And it was simply... The only thing she changed was her tone and the way she delivered it. So everything else is entirely the same. She didn't change a single word in that poem, um, but the way she delivered it. And I just thought it's incredible when a performer is able to do something like that um, just by using their tone and not changing the words.
0: I still find it odd, though, that these conversations don't. I mean, that was sort of part of the purpose of having the podcast and to include without any divide and without scenes between them, people that would be considered purely page poets and people that would be considered purely performance-based was to sort of create a space where these conversations could be had rather than having to wait to see a performer that challenges you on stage because even if you see that on stage you're not necessarily going to have the space to be able to talk to the person about what it meant to you how it might influence you and and how many of us have friends enough that understand our work deeply enough and would understand the, the questions we're asking of ourselves as writers and artists and that sort of leads me to I was going to bring this up a bit later but we'll talk about it now how much of the collection was you yourself responding to wanting to produce a, a book and a collection of work where there was a vacuum and where, where you felt like conversations should be ha- had and you you can take that in any direction you want but i'm just thinking just purely as an, an act of writing being published and then how that feeds into um starting up an initiative like universe which is seemingly from the outside i haven't been to any events yet um because of, sort of left london right at the wrong time to see any of these events but um which seems to be about again identifying a vacuum maybe and providing a platform and a space to talk through ideas
1: okay so with the the writing and i think if you were a spoken word poet and you were writing in the 90s and you're writing in the early 2000s you are not writing for a poetry collection because you would never be published you just didn't have any inkling that you would be looking at a poetry scene as it is today even though poetry has had its ups and downs and it's been a spoken word has had like revivals and um, especially when it looks over across the Atlantic there are things that we imitate that happen in the states but I didn't write for a collection I wrote because I felt like I wanted to write and I needed to write and I enjoy the process of writing and so when Burning Eye Books came up and now you've got Verve Poetry Press and you've got quite a few presses who are publishing spoken word poets it's really exciting it's really exciting for spoken word poets because you realize that you you are producing something that is lasting um, and it comes together in one one book rather than all these bits of papers that you have everywhere or bits of poems on on phones so I think I wasn't really writing for a vacuum in that sense of, of filling in the gap because I was always aware that as also as a spoken word poet there are only particular audiences that you would ever be able to engage with i'm not i'm not caroline duffy i'm not i'm not shakespeare so i'm not going to have access to all the audiences that they had access to so i was always aware that i'm possibly writing for a small community or somebody on my doorstep or literally those small spaces because nobody nobody knows who you are or what your work is and unless you're very good at knowing your marketing then you're not going to get out there so i think the collection really came into fruition when I started seeing some of my contemporaries being published, and I remember thinking, wow, I mean, Vanessa Castillo is being published, Rebecca Tantoni is being published, and Lucy Lepchani is being published, and these are people who I know, <laughs> I've had a drink with them, <laughs> I've had tea with them, so possibly, maybe, I could also be published, um, and started then working on the collection as it is, and, and started to really focus on, on doing that, and put together an application to the Arts Council to get time to write. And I think that really made me think about my work as a professional writer, I think that's the other the other problem with being a writer is you always think, oh, it's something I do on the side, and it's not something that's serious. So oh, it's just I dip into it. When I spoke to a, a a colleague or a friend of mine, she said, "Why don't you get some protected time to write and put in a submit an application to the Arts Council? That's what they're there for." I, I think I hadn't really thought of myself as a serious writer up until that point. So that's when the collection came into being. In terms of the universe. And in terms of we're talking about finding audiences, aren't we? And finding mm-hmm. spaces where we feel that there is a gap.
0: I suppose just what,
1: what there's a, dif- there's a difference
0: it... there's a difference from what I from yes. viewing what I do know about Un- Universe is is that it is not a sim- it's not simply an attempt to put events on. It's not no. it's not audience focused, it's participant and artist focused. Yes. And it's about providing an event. I don't mean uh safe space in the way it's come to politically be charged now but having a a space where people feel comfortable and I suppose it's that that at what point do we go from this conversation about how we interact with an audience how do we become community focused as a producer and a collaborative artist
1: yes okay so I think um for a very long time for some strange naive reason I thought oh I'm the only brown poet (laughs) I'm the only female brown poet who's writing poetry um and then I was being booked for gigs and I think all, I mean, all poets face this, but I think if you come from a disadvantaged background where you are maybe minority background or just have a disability or from the LGBT community, you're always wondering in the back of your mind, am I being booked to headline this gig because I'm ticking a box or am I actually a good poet? Um, and so it's something you always trying to grapple with. And I remember just wondering, wondering this and going on Facebook and just Googling other Southwest poets. And I came across a poet Called Amani Said, who was she was an exeter at the time, and she was doing a few gigs um, that I'd also done. And then part of me was like, oh, she's going to take all of my gigs. She's the new young brown poet. I'm <laughs> no longer needed because um, there's only ever room for one of us. And then I thought, well, actually, let me let me reach out because I think at the time I was working on a few projects in Bristol with other South Asian women. They weren't necessarily creative spaces, but um, around. Um, public engagement and creating communities and I think I realized that growing up particularly watching 90s politics where it was a lot of fighting over the same pots of money money and funding and often people will be brought into an organization as the mouthpiece for a certain community and then they would become a gatekeeper and you had a real issue around mentorship and a real issue around sometimes I'd go into an organization and there was another brown an older brown woman um who I thought I could reach out to and she would help me and she would tell me how she got to the stage that she's gotten to and actually there wasn't that there wasn't that solidarity there because it was a rivalry and I know where that comes from and why that's been set up in that way so I thought, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to be that person. I'm going to be kind. So I reached out to Amani and we met up and we had a chat and it was amazing. I mean, all of the sort of the, the qualms all of the the doubts that you have as a writer uh, our stories really resonated with each other and we started having a conversation about do you think there are more of us and how many do you think there are and where do you think they're based and um, what do you think if we all came together and started just writing together and so initially we just started looking out and um, stalking people on social media and found uh, several many there are now tons of us <laughs> um, but at the time we found Sharifa Energy who's based in London she's incredible Afshan Delozi who's based in Man- Manchester, Shruti who's based in the Midlands, Um, we had Anjali who's also based in London and Sophia Tarker who's also based in London and we came together and every time we would reach out to one of the poets and said well this is what we're thinking of doing of just coming together collaboratively and just supporting each other and having a network where we will help each other out or if there's any stage of my journey that can help your stage of your journey let's let's provide that support usually it started off as a facebook group and now it's a whatsapp group (laughs) so what's the universe it's like it's a whatsapp group basically (laughs) lots of memes get sent around Um, and it was amazing revival of my work and i think writing together with that group of women really changed the way in which i wrote and actually being part of the universe now that we, we so what we do is we encourage other writers to come forward and emerging poets to come forward and use the spoken word like Golden Tongue, which has a house at Richmix, Mix. Um, and also we do the writers group. Uh, so we, we host um, a writing workshop on a monthly basis. At the moment it's on a bit of a break and it's due to start again um, in the new year and that's at the Free Word Centre. So we encourage people to come together, write together and then and provide a space for them to perform um, where they feel safe and comfortable to do that. And it has changed the way in which I write. I think often when I was writing poetry before, if I made any cultural references, I would then, within the poem, explain that cultural reference. And actually, that was kind of detrimental to my art because it's like telling a joke, but then explaining your joke within the joke. Um, It stops being funny. Um, It changed my writing in that I started to write much more concisely and and expected, I suppose, my audience to get what I was saying because that's the space that I was performing in.
0: I think it's really important to bring up ideas about feeling like being the only one yeah. because it's, a, a, it's, a, it's just a direct result of the way so many panel talks and events are put on is that there, there is ju- there is only ever one example of anyone that doesn't fit. The societal norms or whatever you know that traditionally yeah. that are attached with poetry and what attracted me most because i have on my maternal grandfather is from spain so all of his brothers are all spanish and i grew up around flamenco guitars and singing on my father's side i grew up it's a very very london working class background and family and i couldn't see any of those voices on either side of my family represented within poetry. I've since found them, but it takes a lot of searching. Yes. Yes. And if you don't even know where to begin looking, then you're never going to find it. What spoken word allowed me to do was introduce that language that I'd grown up with, a way of talking and a way of communicating. And to just deliver that outright, and then develop it into something which I is now a bit more considered but has allowed me to write in a way that I don't think I would have learned to write without an immediate reaction with an audience. I wonder how much that then plays into the reason I started the podcast, which is a community idea, it's a it's a collaborative idea. I feel like every interview is a collaboration with a guest. I don't feel like it's something that I'm producing on my own, because it isn't, because that would just be a monologue from me, which is, is maybe turning into a bit here, but <laughs> so I'm gonna try to avoid that. But I I don't even know if that's a question and if you wanna just move on from that you can. But if there's anything you feel like um that you that is sort of yeah, I think. I think it's true. What yeah.
1: I mean, what you are talking about in terms of like the, 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 the your maternal grandfather and the flamenco and that that element of art that wasn't seeping through, and it's really interesting. I think I kind of felt like I was I was between two spaces, and maybe you felt that in the same way. In that you had so. You would have, I'd go to poetry nights and they were poetry recitals, for example. Um, I remember being young and going to see Karen Duffy recite poetry, and I was just like, oh, I'm a, I'm a big fan of Karen Duffy's work. And then going to what would happen in our local communities were called Mashiras, and they were poetry nights, and they were people come together and it was spoken word for me because it was somebody would go up on the stage, they'd share a poem, usually dominated by men. Uh, it was a very male-driven space and the audience was so interactive. Like, here we click. The audience there will say, stop, stop, stop to the poet. Start from the beginning. This is brilliant. I want to hear all of them <laughs> from the beginning. And halfway through the poem, the the poet would start right from the beginning. And it was great because they were like, yes, they really like it. They want to hear it again. And those two different spaces were happening. And I was kind of in between, not really able to fit in either one. And so I think that's where universe came in, in terms of, you're right, finding a space where there is a balance between the two of them. I think was really interesting is that Poetry was perceived as as a kind of very academic thing in both in both of those spaces. In the South Asian community, it's very male dominated, and then you have lots of people who wouldn't book me, but would book a spoken word poet who was male and would usually go and perform at like Islamic events or fundraisers um, and they were often talking about politics about Palestine um, and my, my poetry didn't fit into that space but then also it didn't fit into particular spaces within in, in here so that's why I think the universe really works for a lot of South Asian women or female poets and we say women with an X so it's open to non-binary and trans women. And I think what we try to do is play with those two spaces and try and bridge that gap and try and bring one into the other space and realize that there are poets that we don't know. Our poets. The amount of times I've spoken to a taxi driver who is a poet, has been writing poetry, has has told repeated lines of poetry to me. Um, and so you find poets in the, in the spaces that you don't even imagine exist, but. I think writing is just something we're all compelled to do in some way. Many of us are. Um, Well, at least communicating with people. And
0: and, um, it's amazing that the amount of people who feel like with a bit of distance away from someone and a pen and paper, they can communicate much more openly and honest in a way that is more representative in their head of how they feel. And they can do that for a poem in a way that they may not be ever be able to do face to face. I think I, we're going to take a second reading yeah. in one moment. But just in case there's anyone listening and they're thinking, I'm the only one as a reader <laughs> or a writer, um, how can they find out? We'll, we'll, um, we don't need to list web addresses. I'll put that okay. in the episode description. But just how would people get in touch and find out what's going on?
1: Um, so find out through our social media Accounts, so we always update. We've got events coming on. Um, we run monthly events at the Rich Mix. Again, it's all up on our social medias. And we're currently working together as a collective on a show that we're looking to tour. Um, and we're also working on a poetry collection. So yeah, those are well, things you can find out I'll, about.
0: So I'll put links in the episode description. Yeah. Anyone that doesn't know, Rich Mix is a, a venue in Bethnal Green in East London. Yeah, sorry. Uh, that was uh, no, so a... London No, no, but then. it's. it's, <laughs> yes. it's, um, it's difficult when you because we both know London intimately. it's it's very easy for those things I do it all the time as I'm just trying to become very aware of that myself there will probably will be a lot of crossovers if people want to revisit our 100th episode which is um with Rachel Long the founder of Octavia Collective and two two members um and it a huge amount of crossovers. I believe with Amani so yes so
1: um so Anjali was with is well she goes between Octavia and also Yoniverse and we also do a fair bit of work with Zara Sheikh who goes between the two spaces Octavia very much inspired this and very much inspired this but we felt that the need to have a South Asian specific space because I think and that goes back to I think the fact that I grew up in the 90s I felt like 90s politics was a little bit lazy and that we all were politically black and i think um by being politically black we were missing all the nuances and the prejudices that also the south asian community have and i felt that we needed to address those things um but octavia was very much the reason why i thought a collective is
0: i was sort of questioning myself in my head whether i should bring them up because i think yes. they're very relevant but yeah. the, the point you just made was uh something that i would have said Very cumbersomely, (laughs) very eloquently put the difference between the two and why they're both vitally important, I think. So if you wouldn't mind, we'll take a second reading, if that's okay.
1: I I think actually at this point, the second reading would be appropriate to have a poem, a short poem, um, that I've written for my daughter. And it's... I think I probably wrote it because I had very much started this conversation with the other collective members and this idea about why we are creating a collective and what <clears throat> what the purpose of it is. And a huge part of that was when I was working in schools and doing workshops, I noticed that South Asian girls were still the ones who, after so many years that I've left school, they're still the ones who were very reserved. Even when I would come in and they'd see a brown face delivering a workshop. But at the end, they'll be full of all these questions. Um, and I wondered why they weren't taking up spaces in the same way and all the things that they're having to navigate to make sure that their voices are heard and how taking up space is very difficult for South Asian women, not just within British society, but also within our own communities and how European beauty standards is also something that keeps getting pushed on South Asian women. And so when I was pregnant with my daughter, people kept giving me advice about how to be a mother to a daughter and some of the a lot of the advice was around her skin complexion and I would be told things like, drink more milk. Um, which if it was supposed to make my child come out lighter skinned um, and I thought no I probably shouldn't have been having sex with a darker skinned man if I was gonna have a lighter skinned daughter that's not how it works but it was it was amazing how a lot of the advice I was being given was around how she was going to look and how she needed to be lighter skinned and how that's going to help her in society and I and I remember growing up with very much bearing this in mind between me and my sister and how we had inequality and i've met many sisters who there'll be a lighter skinned one and a darker skinned sister and how that's actually put a rift between their relationship um and so that's a really long winded introduction for a short poem but it's called truth and it's dedicated to my daughter i wrote this poem for every time i turned pages in asiana magazine and i was confronted by skin lightning products I wrote this poem for every time I switched on BBC One Extra and BBC Asian Network and it was all light-skinned girl and Ave. I wrote this poem when Dia magazine quietly enveloped into my home, my letterbox revealing how Indian models were now being replaced with European ones. I wrote this poem when Gajal made a comeback film with Dilwale, her Frida Kahlo self-acceptance now, a heavy white cloud on a once sunny day. I wrote this poem when I was nine. I wrote this poem when I was nine and my sister's defiance was held together by the brownness of her skin. I wrote this poem when I looked into my daughter's face and I folded away lies into my hands. I held instead a mirror to her skin and I showed her she is her foremothers. I showed her she is her ancestors. I showed her that she is her goddesses. I showed her that she is the living energy of the sun. I showed her she is truth and truth is courage and courage is beauty and that beauty is her.
0: Thank you very much. I suppose now we can consider this the second half of the conversation and let's focus on the direction your writing is taking now because *Jam Is for Girls came out in 2017. Yes. Is that right? So yes. as is the natural order and pace at which poetry collections are written, that probably reflects stuff that is a few years old now. Yes. And I just wonder if we could talk about how you're writing now, how you see yourself as a writer and how that has been both... Is now different but also influenced by having your debut book be yes. a, po- a collection of poetry
1: so i think I, th- I suppose once you have a book you can say uh, particularly to funding bodies but also your mum i'm i'm an official <laughs> writer um i count for something now and it allows you to really work on the way in which you write and create art and so I feel that the I'm, I'm currently writing a second poetry collection but I really want to take my time with this one this one took 10 years to write <laughs> I'm saying I want to take my time but I want to take my time on each poem and I want to work with mentoring I want to work through courses I want to work by getting funding to make it happen and make it exist in a way that you know you 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 worked to to look at it as a collection rather than I'm just writing because I have the impulse to write so I think that's the way in which the second collection is coming together and my voice has changed very much from when I was writing 12 years ago and the stories are, that will be reflecting the new collection are reflective of, an, of a new generation of, or, or generation of women who are in similar spaces as me in their 30s and I really want to pay homage to a lot of the stories from Punjabi culture which I've started to which I've always grown up knowing but I never felt like it had a place in my writing because I felt like my writing was very British Um, and now I want to kind of mix the two. The first collection was actually broken into the different rivers of Punjab so Punjab literally means five rivers Banj meaning five, Ab meaning rivers and so rivers play a really big part in my writing and so almost all the five rivers in Punjab which is a region that crosses between India and Pakistan. So a lot of people are devastated at the fact that the five rivers that go into the Indus are now sort of so separate from each other. But all of those rivers have their own myths and their own stories um, and their own sort of love stories. So you have Hiran Jai, you have all the different Laila Majinal, which are kind of like Romeo Juliet stories. And I really want to talk about the idea of romantic love and what that means in, in the world in which we live in today. So that's one collection that I'm writing as a follow-up from this one um, and then the second piece that I'm writing is a coming-of-age novel which is a very different way of writing I think with poetry I really enjoy it and it's those short bursts of emotion or thought that you can get into a small poem um, sometimes a longer of three minute long poets or I've worked on poems that are 10 minutes long but it's quite contained every word every line has to work harder because you've got to make sure that everything is utilising the space correctly in the poem but writing for a sustained period of time um, and meeting other novelists and authors who are pulling their hair out because they are at year number three with their same novel is uh, an interesting area that I'm now discovering um, in my own writing. The the novel is very much, I mean this, this poetry collection is very much the basis for the novel and it's been something that's been brewing at the back of my mind for a very long time and I think I was doing the thing that all poets do now where we all have a solo show. (laughs) So I started working on a solo show and every time I'd sit down to write a script for the solo show using this poetry collection, it kept writing itself as a novel and I just couldn't get it to write as a script um, for theatre. So after repeatedly doing that process again and again, I decided actually if it's writing itself as a novel... Let me try and experiment and see if I can if I can write as a novel. So I've started a few pivotal writing, few pivotal scenes, and then said, "Actually, you're you're a creative. You're a professional writer. So see if you can get any support in this." Um, and then submitted to the Arts Council's new developing your creative practice grant, which I love this is relatively new i think it's wonderful yeah
0: is it it's, was it january this year was the first round? yes yeah.
1: so they they usually have the grants for the arts which is always very project driven it's very much about creating an end product and this is allowing artists to just experiment with their art to experiment with their voice it's almost like creating art for the sake of art rather than how many bums in seats or how many audience there's, members there's a critical dif-
0: difference with this funding isn't there is that you don't have um, to produce, have pre- and you don't have to sort of imagine an audience because there is no audience engagement obligation yes. on you yes. as a yes. applying. It you know?
1: is literally you being able to go away and just experiment and try new things, and and not have to have an end product, which is always a pressure. So the amount of times I'm working with creatives who are wanting to really, I mean, essentially you're applying because you want to write, but when you're applying to do a, a project. Or get grants for the arts. What you're doing is cre- doing everything except for the writing. So you're running the workshops and you're you're going into schools and you're doing all the other things, but you're not doing the writing. So this has been a godsend, and I've been I feel really lucky in that I was I was selected and offered this um, this fund, um, and I'm working with an amazing um, author, Sarabeth Hussain, who's the author of uh, a novel called This Wide Night, um, and has had a new one come out as well this year. And she's been mentoring me in making sure that I'm I'm hitting those milestones because I think it's quite easy to talk about your novel to people all the time I'm writing a novel but not actually write it and so having somebody who's been through that process um, break down some of that process to you has been really useful
0: Just for anyone that's listening that's interested in developing your creative practice and what that might mean to them as an artist um if you go back and listen to episode 114 it's me in conversation with Gemma seltzer then of the arts council who instigated that that funding and it's like a half an hour breakdown of um, the difference between that and the existing project grants and what the difference Mm -hmm. is and uh just some tips on applying and whether it's relevant for you because we're talking about ideas of community like where do you go for this information it was very important to me as someone that's had luckily enough i say luckily it's a huge amount of work i've had free project grants from the arts council to to fund this podcast project it was very difficult to find information the first time i applied and had i had access to a certain amount of information i could have shaved five six months off the initial application process and anyone that wants to know anything more about project grants can go to my website there's a, a page on there called series evaluation where i've Published the first year spending for my project grant so it breaks down the costing so it gives you an idea of what the arts council will actually fund and what you're able to use the money from but that's a side note again I'll put links in but the episode really description important. because yeah. I think just I because think it feels relevant to the that's conversation really, we're yeah having. that's
1: really well re- I think I think I mean that's something I think's hugely important and in fact when I received the funding one of the things I put together was Everyone, anyone who has to look up my application form, you're more than welcome to, um, because I think it seems like such a daunting thing. But once you see what somebody else has submitted for, I think it makes it much more accessible and easier. And to know that there are people who are doing it who are saying, look, speak to me if you need advice. Yeah, I think it's so important that people tap into that, that pot of funding um, and find out who your literature representative is as well. I think that really helps. Reach out to them. Definitely,
0: yeah. yeah. I just want to go back to a very quick point you made about sort of how you view the way that you're writing now and Mm -hmm. you you said that you want to take your time yes and that it but that's sort of a funny thing to say when the first book took so long yes but it's a very common thing that I hear and it's something that I experienced myself that almost feverish engagement that we have with spoken word when we first start that there's all these gigs that you don't know about there's all these people you don't know about and it and it the whole thing just feels like it can feel like a whirlwind and even though it there's yes. a decade for you for me there was four years and I suppose if you took Selena Godden for whom yes. there's almost 25 yeah, years yeah, perhaps probably. and probably if you spoke to Lucy English as well who's yes. Bristol based would have the same feeling of how quickly that can all pass by and the conscious decision to say no I need to slow down now
1: it's I you- think it's not a slowing down necessarily it's about focused Time. Sorry, that, that was yes, the wrong yes. phrase so to I use. Think, yeah. Yes, so I think I think when I'm so when I say ironically, it took me ten years to write this collection, but I was writing on the side of being a student, on the side of having a, a, a full time job, on the side of having a full time life. Um, and so when I say I want to spend more time on individual poems, is that I want to dedicate my time as a writer so it's got my full attention rather than me sitting on a bus and scribbling things together and then editing in a cafe very quickly somewhere it's about me approaching my work in a very informed and like in a in a a sort of looking at the process of writing and looking at myself as a writer and allowing myself that space to be a writer Mm -hmm. rather than putting things together where I have possible time.
0: Mm -hmm. And I suppose putting yourself in a position where you have a, like you were saying, you have actively seeking this mentoring. Yes. uh, These mentoring relationships with other writers and placing yourself in a community. Because whilst it seems probably natural for you and I to say, well, a spoken word poet is a poet and a poet is a writer and a novelist is a writer. So we're all part of the same thing. In reality, that's not true because you're not that anyone's necessarily shutting the door on you, but we all go to different events. We go to different types of readings. We go to different types of panel discussions and it takes time, doesn't it, to then step out of one scene and get to know people in another.
1: Yes, yes. I mean, there's lots of things I don't know about the world of the novelist. (laughs) Um, It's very different. I think I'm still at this stage where... I'm not rushing to find out about the scene as much as I'm rushing, not necessarily rushing, but I'm I'm spending more time to find my own voice as a novelist and and does it have a right to exist as a novelist or should I be going back to what I'm I'm used to doing, which is poetry. So I think it's it's about finding my own voice and then once I found that as a novelist, then finding where it sits within the community of, of other writers who write novels or novellas or.
0: When you talked earlier about sort of exploring more the bilingual nature of your uh, the way you communicate is that feeding into also into the ideas around the novel is that or you is that still a more lyrical thing within that's still a more
1: lyrical thing within poetry and I think so I I think I've, I've got more maybe even just like two heads on at the moment in that there is the poetry side which I'm trying to keep to poetry and then really kind of I mean, obviously I will always approach my my storytelling as a as a poet, um, and I I love imagery. I love playing with all of those. Um, sometimes I'm writing a piece which is is for the novel, and I think this is this is a really good poem. Actually, I think I should just use the separate bit as a poem. So it's difficult to do that, but I think. What was really interesting, I was going through the poetry collection and I've got a poem in here which has one or two lines completely written in Punjabi and I have an index at the back of this poetry collection and I haven't included that in the index at all. And so there's no translation and I remember thinking, oh, I haven't translated that for my audiences whereas other bits and pieces and other words I have translated and I think it's something about, I think within my poetry I started to go between the two different languages and because it made sense in my head, didn't realise that it would not make sense with every single audience member. So, yeah, I thought that was quite interesting that I was thinking in that way.
0: I, I, yeah. I just find it fascinating. I, um, having come to a second language quite late in life, I, in my late 20s, learnt, okay. learnt Norwegian. And uh, it feeds into, more interestingly, in this conversation to, again, what is our relationship to our audience? What How much are we telling them as a poet? And your development as a poet and writer at what point do you feel like well not everyone has to understand everything and again to your point earlier on on do you really want to ruin all your jokes by explaining everything yes. seven times and making it clearer and clearer and, and then I suppose that that process and that journey of just becoming more confident and knowing that well perhaps people will go and google certain yes. things if they don't understand them and actually as a poem does it, is it any less for not knowing what certain words mean? Because a lot of your readers won't know mm. what a lot of English words mean, yeah. you, know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know.
1: Yeah, and I think also growing up, so I mean, the, the I say Punjabi, but we speak Batwari, which is like a, a kind of Punjabi, um, which is an oral language. Then being a Muslim meant that we had to learn, we learnt a lot of Arabic, but we learnt Arabic with a completely Batwari accent um, and Batwari alphabet and so whenever we speak any what well, we say any of the prayers or any of the um, words to Arabs they have no idea what we're talking about even though we think we're speaking Arabic um, and also we we whilst we speak it because Udun looks the same um, as Arabic we don't know what we're saying so I'm used to praying I am used to saying things that I have no idea what the meaning is but it's very emotive, and there are times where I'm, I've heard a prayer, or I've heard the azan, or I've heard been in a space where I'm hearing the Arabic language, which has, always has a religious connotation for me that I don't understand. But it doesn't mean that it's had it hasn't had an effect on me, or it doesn't it doesn't mean anything to me. Um, and I think being able to be in that space where I can I can consume a language without understanding the exact meaning of it um, has made me feel that I can I can do that with my audiences, um, and it should be fine. It's fun.
0: I think we need to trust readers more, don't we? Yes. You know, it's um and and listeners. It, it, it's quite interesting the the times that I've had people read poems on the podcast in languages other than English. Are normally the ones where I get most feedback because people get in touch to say that it was really nice to to engage as a listener and question why you're listening to something when you know you're not going to understand a single... You know, it's not mm-hmm. even that you're there yes. are going to be particular words, but you're not going to understand any uh, uh, poet, most of Mary, who the interview was in English, but all all of his readings were in Arabic, a Syrian poet. And I got so much feedback about the way that people engaged and the emotion that that sort of dragged out of them without any do air quotes here, but meaning from that, because I don't know, we I think something I'm thinking about a lot is the sort of uh, limitations of our language. And even though you think by using standard words you think you're getting across a meaning to people and you, often you're not no. it's not it's not so much about <laughs> no. that you know you I think we convince ourselves that we're being clear and we're not always <laughs> yeah
1: I agree with that yeah <laughs>
0: yes um, time is ticking on yes. but I just wanted to make sure that we mention before we finish uh the recent um burning eye BAME poetry competition mm-hmm. that you judged yes. and the three winners uh that came out of that Hanan Issa mm-hmm. who um on runs a fantastic event in Cardiff. Uh, where am I coming where from? I'm, where I'm coming from. Where I'm yes. coming from, sorry. Which is a great... i really enjoyed that event. It's really good. Caroline Teague and Adrian Earl, who otherwise goes by the name Think, Right Fly, and is based in Birmingham and runs the Verse First podcast. Yes. I just wondered if we could just chat a bit. Probably don't have time to go too much into it, but just your experiences as a judge for that, how you were invited and whether there was any sort of criteria placed upon you to make your decision or whether it was a free role.
1: Um, so I think I've been working on and off with Brennan and I and have a really good relation for a long time. And I think we had a conversation once about, I think I was speaking about universe and how until I started looking, I didn't find... I wasn't aware of South Asian women poets and you have to look and it's about your your networks and your networks so if I, originally I was based in Bristol my networks were Bristol then you go and speak to people who beyond those networks and beyond those circles and then it grows and I think Burning Eye books are very much aware that yes they are a spoken word publisher but they try to make sure that they're and especially if you look at the spoken word scene, it's so diverse. It's you know, you've got you've got females forefronting a lot of spoken word as well. You've got the Kate Tempests and the Holly McNishes, and you've got many people of color as well who are amazing writers. I'm thinking in particular the Jerwood poet, uh, the winning poet, um, um, and uh, Raymond Raymond Antibus. Antibus. Yeah. Um, So the voices that come out of spoken word it, it's unlike the canon, which is where you've got to have a sort of established literary background. Is you come in and you if your work resonates with an audience and it's powerful and it's strong, you can come in and you can break into that industry. And I think publishing should reflect that. And I think Bren and I are very much aware that their publishing should reflect it. So they wanted to make sure that they are, that, that, that as a publisher, that they are doing that. So when we started having this conversation about the pamphlet, they they were very much aware that they wanted to expand their knowledge of who is a person of colour and a writer out there and and look to publish beyond just the southwest as well. I mean, they do that anyway, but they wanted to look at particularly Voices of Colour, where we have got Ho Noir who run between London and run in Birmingham as well. And Birmingham's got a really good poetry scene, but you've also got up north, you've got really interesting voices. And so it's something that I'm aware of within our collective because we've got Midland voices, we've got Northern voices, um, and Amani's got a New Jersey accent. So it's really brilliant when you hear those different voices come together. Um, in terms of, how that was judged I got the manuscripts I wasn't aware of who was submitting what so there was no names attached to it it was really it was, um, it was a brilliant experience I spent the entire summer with just myself and Bridget just reading through poetry um so I mean I was like this is the good life this is <laughs> this is my job I'm reading poetry and it was so much it was so much fun and so exciting and I think I expanded my knowledge of who is a spoken word poet and working and in that industry. I think there are quite a few emerging voices and I'm really glad to see that there are people who are emerging as poets and, and are looking to push themselves and, and take up things that whereas before we'd always doubt ourselves. For me the three who won were very experienced poets and, and clearly had spent a lot of time with poetry and read a lot of poetry and really thought about what it meant to be published. I think um, that's why those three were selected. So we selected them. I select, we put together a shortlist and then from the shortlist, um, we then knew who each manuscript belonged to and what their background was and made a decision about the the winners. Um And they're all really deserving. And just by chance that they come from all these different... It, so we, we we weren't aware of their backgrounds until, until that shortlist. It's really interesting,
0: process. the geographical spread yes. after free writers yeah. and considering that was it was purely a, by chance it wasn't a, like we went in, yeah. submission process yes yeah. so it wasn't like
1: strategically like right we want to have the midlands and we want to have wales and we want to have london and we want it was it was generally these are the works that resonated and, and spoke out
0: i think it's going to be a very important thing as well for people of the same uh, of the same sort of uh i was gonna say career position but you know if, if you're an emerging writer or unpublished it's going to be it's very important that there's a geographical spread for this competition because quite often things are very London focused aren't they um it seems really positive I think we're going to take a third and final reading but before we do that I just want to thank you very much I've had a really great time chatting and there's so much more we could have talked about. It's a shame these things can't go on for three hours. So yeah, I don't think it, people would um, indulge we, okay. me so much. <laughs> <laughs> we'll
1: have a cup of tea. How we continue yeah, yeah. our chat. Yeah, yeah. definitely. Really um,
0: nice. And there's always the opportunity to revisit things in the future as well, because there's uh, a lot to think about in this conversation. And obviously we acknowledge right at the beginning, Our personally as writers and artists, our ideas change so much as more influences us and how our process goes along. Perhaps one day we can revisit and... Uh, yeah, yep. as long as I do a good job of the editing and it sounds all right, and you want to revisit, <laughs> if people want to check you out, where can they do I've that? I've got a
1: website, mm-hmm. sugarthecakebar. dot mm-hmm. um, and I'm on social media as sugarthecakebar poet. So, um, Instagram I use a fair bit. I tweet occasionally, um, but and I've also got a Facebook page, but I'm not so on top of that Facebook yeah. always. Struggle with me too. Me too. <laughs> yeah. My
0: the Facebook page for this podcast has gone right downhill. <laughs> yes. I'm yes, not, yes. not even sure anyone could see it now with the algorithms the way I, uh, yeah. Uh,
1: I think you've got yeah. to keep paying to yeah, get yeah, people yeah, to yeah. see it. Yeah, so um, that's where you can find me. Um, and otherwise, you can find me in Bristol at Golden Tongue mm-hmm. in in the nights that we run in London. Yes, wonderful.
0: Thank you very much. We'll take uh, the final reading, please. I,
1: know. I was going to read a particular poem, but I think I've changed my mind now. Um, after the conversations we've been having. So I'm gonna stick to the original one that I was going to do because I think we've we've talked enough about, about what language means. So um the poem I'm going to share is called Empire, and it's something that is taken me a very long time to write a poem about colonization and the effects it had on the Indian subcontinent and what that means as a Punjabi as well, where Punjab has been split into so many different sections and being based in Kashmir as well and what those lines and the the lasting effects of it so I wrote this poem in the only way that I knew how to write it as a relationship I was doing all right until I met him needy complicated full of drama it was small man syndrome it was upbringing he was misunderstood he was island he needed to be given a chance And everyone said he would be cruel, but it happened so slow. And then suddenly it was two hundred years of sorrow that sat into my bones, that sat into the salt of me. I had let him hold my face in his hands, whisper in my ears, let him mute the spice of me. He slipped heirlooms off my nakedness, fingers, neck, wrists, ankles exposed. He put his dick into the soil of me. I bore the children he denied, he drew lines across my body. He broke me into nationless pieces. He gave me a blade and sat and watched blood flow. He waited. he waited for me to become all teeth, or nails or bones.
0: Hello, thanks a bunch for sticking around. If you're interested in checking out the pamphlets we were chatting about, which were a result of the competition that Shagufta judged, then get yourself over to burningeyebooks.wordpress.com for updates about publication dates for what are sure to be fantastic short collections from Hanan Issa, Adrian Earle and Caroline Teague. For updates from us, then find us at Lunar Poetry Podcast on Facebook and Instagram or at silent underscore tongue on Twitter and go to A Pime A Week on Facebook and Twitter for our companion series. And if you can afford to do so, then do please support us by buying our fantastic Anthology Why Poetry. I'll be back probably at the end of November with episode 120. I haven't lined up a guest for that episode yet, so it will be a surprise for everyone. The next episode will in fact be the last before I take a few months off. I haven't really had a break in the four years that the podcast has been going and what with the workload this year and getting the book out I'm a bit cream crackered as we say in London. More details on that break next month. Here's an idea why don't you get in touch via social media and let me know who you'd like me to talk to in 2019. Which sort of seems like a long way off, but it's only I don't know twelve weeks away or something. Here's that poem from the anthology I promised you. It's apparition by Zena Hashembeck. The woman on your balcony looks familiar. You offer her coffee and she sips, reminds you to get that light bulb in the kitchen fixed, let go of that old eyeshadow. It's been years. Talk to your mother more often. You tell her you dreamt your daughter was sleeping like the children on the news and she asks if she can borrow your black leather jacket. She loves the studs and silver zippers. She's tired of roving in this gown, like this world's merely a visit she has to make on morning rounds to the eel. You tell her your husband doesn't like to read the credits at the end of movies, always leaves you alone in your seat and this scares you. She goes inside and down the stairs. She hums the way you sometimes do in supermarket aisles, the tremors in your throat taking you by surprise between the grapes and the strawberries, and you almost whispering, hello. That's it. Be good to yourselves, and others. See like...